Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. My name is Dr. Jasmine Masumi, and I am a pediatric resident at LACUSC Medical Center. Now for today's case, Case 55, by Dr. Rebecca Mayer and Dr. Jennifer Shepard. After delivery, a full-term newborn is lethargic with poor respiratory effort. You are called to an emergency cesarean section for fetal distress at 39 and 3 weeks of gestation. A male infant is delivered through meconium-stained amniotic fluid. He is brought to the radiant warmer and is noted to be pale and floppy, with minimal respiratory effort and a heart rate more than 100 beats per minute. You warm and stimulate him and provide bulb sectioning to clear his airway. He develops grunting, so you initiate continuous positive airway pressure, or CPAP, at 5 centimeters of water pressure with 21% oxygen. His work of breathing and color improve. He is transferred to the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, or NICU, for further management of respiratory distress. What are common causes of respiratory distress in the neonate? Respiratory distress in the neonate is common, affecting up to 7% of term infants. It can present with tachypnea, nasal flaring, retractions, or grunting, and can be caused by pulmonary and non-pulmonary diseases. Transient tachypnea of the newborn, or TTN, is caused by retained fetal lung fluid due to delayed clearance, as you can see in figure 55.1a. It is a self-limited process and usually resolves within 48 hours. Respiratory distress syndrome, or RDS, is caused by deficiency of surfactant and is most common in preterm infants, as you can see in figure 55.1b. Infants with RDS often require respiratory support and some require administration of exogenous surfactant. Meconium aspiration syndrome, or MAS, occurs when an infant passes meconium in utero and subsequently aspirates the meconium in utero or during delivery, as seen in figure 55.1c. It rarely occurs before 34 weeks of gestation. Meconium aspiration causes inflammation, surfactant deactivation, and obstruction of distal airways. For infants who have received positive pressure as part of the resuscitation at delivery, and have respiratory distress, pneumothorax must also be considered, as seen in figure 55.1d. Although pneumothorax can also occur spontaneously. Infants with pneumothorax have diminished or absent breath sounds on the affected side and may have chest wall asymmetry on examination. Numerous other disease states can present with respiratory distress, as seen in box 55.1. Some common non-pulmonary causes of respiratory distress in the neonate include sepsis, hypoglycemia, congenital heart disease, and polycythemia. Time for a basic science pearl. The risk of respiratory disease among neonates decreases as gestational age increases. Among infants born at term, those born at 37 weeks have higher rates of RDS, TTN, pneumonia, and use of high-frequency oscillatory ventilation compared to those born at 39 weeks. Time for another basic science pearl. Grunting occurs as an infant forces air against a partially closed glottis in an attempt to maintain adequate functional reserve capacity. 
Case point 55.1. On admission to the NICU, his vital signs are as follows. Temperature is 97.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 74 over 51 millimeters of mercury. Mean arterial pressure is 59 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 167 beats per minute. Respiration rate is 76 breaths per minute. And oxygen saturation is 94% with nasal CPAP at 5 centimeters of water pressure and FiO2 of 30%. His birth weight is 3670 grams. On physical examination, you see an appropriate for gestational age male with decreased tone and reactivity to examination. His anterior fontanelle is soft and flat. He has a nasal cannula in place. He is tachypnic with equal breath sounds, mild nasal flaring, intermittent grunting, and subcostal retractions. His cardiac examination is notable for absence of a murmur. His skin is pale. Refer to box 55.1 for differential diagnoses of respiratory distress in the newborn. Case point 55.2. A chest x-ray, as seen in figure 55.2, shows increased interstitial lung markings without evidence of consolidation, effusion, or pneumothorax in a normal cardiac silhouette. A complete blood cell count, or CBC, capillary blood gas, CBG, blood glucose level, and blood culture were obtained at admission. Respiratory support is escalated to non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Because of his metabolic acidosis, you provide a normal saline bolus of 10 milliliters per kilogram, and to correct his hypoglycemia, you administer a bolus of dextrose 10% in water at 2 milliliters per kilogram and start dextrose-containing intravenous fluids at 80 milliliters per kilogram per day. One hour later, his blood gas shows significant improvement in all parameters. His blood glucose level normalizes. You initiate antibiotic therapy with ampicillin at 50 mg per kilogram, Q12 hours, and gentamicin at 4 mg per kilogram, Q24 hours. At 12 hours of life, a C-reactive protein, or CRP, level and repeat CBC are sent. The results of the laboratory studies are shown in Table 55.1. What is neonatal sepsis? Neonatal sepsis can be divided into two broad categories each of which carries its own risk factors, pathophysiology, likely causative organisms, and treatment. Early onset sepsis, or EOS, is defined as signs or symptoms of sepsis with an associated positive culture within 72 hours of life. Late onset sepsis, or LOS, is defined as signs or symptoms associated with sepsis at 72 hours after birth. The diagnosis of sepsis is challenging due to the wide variety and severity of presenting features, many of which can mimic symptoms of other diseases. Although the gold standard of diagnosis for sepsis is a positive culture, a diagnosis of probable sepsis is often made based on the clinical presentation and evaluation of laboratory study results, even in the absence of a positive culture result. The overall incidence of early-onset sepsis is approximately 0.3 to 1 out of 1,000 live births, and the incidence increases with decreasing birth weight. For term infants, mortality due to early-onset sepsis is approximately 3%. However, mortality reaches 30% to 54% in preterm infants. Late-onset sepsis occurs in approximately 36% of preterm infants with gestational age less than 28% 
and its incidence decreases with increasing birth weight and gestational age. Now, what is the clinical presentation of an infant with sepsis? The symptoms of early onset sepsis generally present while the infant is still in the hospital after birth. Late onset sepsis can present while an infant is still in the hospital or after discharge home. The clinical presentation of an infant with sepsis is nonspecific and can range from asymptomatic to shock. Some common symptoms include respiratory distress, hemodynamic instability, lethargy, poor feeding, metabolic acidosis, hypoglycemia, hyperglycemia, and jaundice. Neonates with meningitis may have a full fontanelle, seizures, irritability, and or lethargy. Case point 55.3. You obtain additional history about the infant's mother. She is a 24-year-old G2P2 woman with no significant past medical history. Her only medication during the pregnancy was prenatal vitamins. She had appropriate prenatal care. The onset of labor was spontaneous and the membranes ruptured 19 hours prior to the delivery. Her prenatal laboratory results were unremarkable, including group B streptococci, GBS, negative status. What is the pathophysiology of sepsis? Early onset sepsis is thought to be the result from the vertical transmission of a causative organism, either through contaminated amniotic fluid or via exposure of the infant to flora from the mother's genitourinary tract. Late onset sepsis can result from vertical transmission or horizontal transmission via contact with the environment or caregivers. What risk factors are associated with sepsis? The most significant risk factors for early onset sepsis are maternal colonization with group B streptococci or GBS, chorioamnionitis, maternal fever, prolonged rupture of membranes or rupture of membranes greater than 18 hours, and inadequate antibiotic prophylaxis during the intrapartum period. Additionally, premature infants and infants with lower birth weight are more susceptible to early-onset sepsis. Extreme prematurity is the greatest risk factor for late-onset sepsis due to the impaired immune function of preterm infants, making them more vulnerable to invasive infection. Additional risk factors for late-onset sepsis include mechanical ventilation, vascular catheters, hospitalization, surgery, and respiratory or cardiac disease. Time for case point 55.4. Approximately 17 hours after the infant's blood culture was sent to the laboratory, it is growing Escherichia coli, sensitive to gentamicin and cefotaxime. A repeat blood culture is sent and remains negative. Lumbar puncture is performed with a reassuring cell count glucose and protein from the cerebral spinal fluid, or CSF. CSF culture is sent and remains negative. The antimicrobial therapy is changed to cefotaxime at 50 mg per kg BID. Now, which infants should be evaluated for sepsis? In early onset sepsis, evaluation should be performed if an infant has physical examination findings concerning for infection, if the infant is born in the setting of chorioamnionitis or maternal fever, even if asymptomatic, or if the mother is GBS positive without adequate intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has released guidelines regarding the management of infants at risk for GBS sepsis, and based on the presence or absence of various perinatal risk factors, these guidelines recommend a full laboratory evaluation with empiric antibiotic therapy, laboratory evaluation alone, observation for 48 hours after birth, or routine care. If the clinician is concerned about late-onset sepsis in an infant, 
After obtaining laboratory studies in appropriate cultures, empiric antibiotic therapy should be initiated, particularly in the presence of risk factors such as the presence of an intravascular catheter or prolonged intubation. What is the laboratory evaluation of infants suspected of having sepsis? A CBC with differential should be sent to evaluate the white blood cell count and differential. Infants with early onset sepsis often demonstrate leukopenia and a high percent of immature white blood cells. Infants with late onset sepsis may have a high or low white blood cell count, a high neutrophil count, and a high percentage of immature white blood cells. Acute phase reactants are often part of the evaluation of infants suspected of having early onset sepsis. The CRP level is a measure of the inflammatory response in the neonate. It begins to rise within 6 to 8 hours of exposure to infection and peaks at 24 hours following infection. The negative predictive value of having two consecutive normal CRP levels has been reported as 99.7%. Thus, if an infant has a consistently normal CRP level, the likelihood of bacterial sepsis is low. The CRP level is also useful for infants suspected of having late-onset sepsis, and an elevated value is concerning for infection. Another serum biomarker used to evaluate infants suspected of having sepsis is procalcitonin. The procalcitonin concentration peaks at 2 to 12 hours after an infectious exposure and is more sensitive, but less specific, than the CRP level for predicting bacterial sepsis. Time for another clinical pearl. The I over T ratio is the ratio of immature to total neutrophils. Immature neutrophils include bands, metamyelocytes, myelocytes, and promyelocytes. A value greater than 0.22 in infants younger than 32 weeks and greater than 0.27 in term infants is considered elevated and concerning for sepsis. Cultures are required to identify a causative organism. A blood culture should be sent on any infant suspected of having early onset sepsis or late onset sepsis. A urine culture should not be sent routinely in infants suspected of having early onset sepsis, but should be sent on infants suspected of having late onset sepsis. The decision to perform lumbar puncture should be based on the infant's clinical presentation. However, if an infant has a positive blood culture, does not improve with antimicrobial therapy, or has laboratory findings that are strongly suggestive of bacterial sepsis, the infant should be evaluated for meningitis with a lumbar puncture. Lumbar puncture should also be performed in neonates with fever. If the infant is intubated, culture should also be sent on aspirate from the endotracheal tube. Time for another clinical pearl. In infants with bacteremia, as many as 23% have concurrent meningitis. In 38% of infants with meningitis, the blood culture is negative. It is uncommon for a neonate with meningitis to present with meningismus. Which bacteria most commonly cause sepsis, and how is sepsis treated? The two most common organisms that cause early-onset sepsis are GBS and E. coli. Combined, they account for 62% of cases of early-onset sepsis. Empiric therapy for early-onset sepsis is usually ampicillin and gentamicin. For late-onset sepsis, the most common pathogen is coagulase-negative staphylococci, which accounts for over 50% of late-onset sepsis cases in the United States. Vancomycin and an aminoglycoside are commonly used as empiric therapy. However, a third-generation cephalosporin can be added if there is concern for gram-negative meningitis. Once a pathogen has been identified, 
Antibiotic therapy should be tailored to the causative organism and susceptibilities for the duration of therapy. For infants with uncomplicated bacteremia, treatment should be for 10 days. For treatment of gram-negative bacteremia, treatment may extend to 14 days. For infants with uncomplicated GBS meningitis, treatment should continue for a minimum of 14 days, whereas those with gram-negative meningitis should be treated for 21 days or for 14 days after the first negative culture, whichever is longer. For infants whose clinical presentation, risk factors, and laboratory studies suggest sepsis, but whose culture does not grow an organism, the clinician must use his or her clinical judgment to determine the duration of therapy. In infants for whom empiric therapy has been initiated, but, based on laboratory results, clinical conditions, and negative culture results, the probability of sepsis has been determined to be low, antimicrobial therapy should be discontinued at 48 hours. Time for another clinical pearl. Antibiotic dosing for neonates is calculated based on an infant's weight, gestational age, and postmenstrual age. For infants suspected of having group B streptococci, or GBS, meningitis, ampicillin is used at a dose of 200 to 300 mg per kilogram per day divided every 8 hours. Gentamicin has been associated with ototoxicity and nephrotoxicity. Close attention should be paid to an infant's renal function and hydration status while on gentamicin. Serum drug peak and trough levels should be monitored for infants undergoing prolonged therapy. Case point 55.5. The infant completes 14 days of antibiotic therapy. His laboratory studies normalize and he is weaned off respiratory support to room air. He is discharged home after completion of antibiotic therapy. So, how can bacterial sepsis be prevented? The most significant intervention used to prevent early onset sepsis has been the routine use of intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis for a mother colonized with GBS. Since the guidelines for intrapartum prophylaxis have been implemented, the incidence of early onset sepsis due to GBS has decreased by 80%. Neither the incidence of late onset sepsis due to GBS nor that of sepsis due to E. coli has changed with the routine use of intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis. Efforts to prevent late-onset sepsis include careful hand hygiene and timely removal of unnecessary vascular catheters and endotracheal tubes. What are the outcomes associated with neonatal sepsis? Sepsis is one of the primary causes of neonatal mortality worldwide. Even with appropriate treatment, those who survive are at risk for long-term sequelae. Infants with sepsis have increased risk for delayed motor development, delayed cognitive development, and cerebral palsy. Those with meningitis have additional risks of hearing and vision impairment, seizures, neurodevelopmental impairment, and behavioral problems. Time for the case summary. Complaint and history? A full-term newborn male has respiratory distress and pallor after delivery. Findings? The infant is delivered with meconium-stained amniotic fluid. He is hypotonic with minimal response to stimuli, tachycardic, and tachypnic with nasal flaring and retractions. Labs and tests? He is hypoglycemic with an elevated C-reactive protein level, metabolic and respiratory acidosis, blood culture is positive for E. coli, chest x-ray shows bilateral interstitial markings. Diagnosis? early-onset neonatal sepsis, treatment, intravenous antibiotics. Lastly, 
it's time for our Beyond the Pearls. Although most bacteria that can cause early onset sepsis arise from the mother's urogenital tract, some pathogenic bacteria can cross the placenta, such as Treponema pallidum and Listeria monocytogenes. By 24 hours after collection, 91% of pathogenic blood cultures will be positive. 99% will be positive by 48 hours. A sample of at least 1 milliliter of blood should be collected for blood culture because infants often have a low colony count of bacteria. Therefore, a smaller sample volume could lead to a false negative result. In neonates for whom a third-generation cephalosporin is indicated for therapy, ceftriaxone should be avoided because it has potential to displace bilirubin from albumin, therefore increasing the potential for kernicterus. Cephotaxime should be used as an alternative. Fungemia, usually due to candida species, accounts for approximately 2.5% of bloodstream infections in very low birth weight infants and should be considered in these infants when they are evaluated for late-onset sepsis. Omphalitis, an infection of the umbilicus or surrounding tissue in neonates, can lead to systemic infection because bacteria can enter the bloodstream through the umbilical vessels. For infants being evaluated for sepsis in whom herpes simplex virus is on the differential diagnosis, acyclovir should be added to the empiric antimicrobial regimen until the infant's diagnostic study results are available. That concludes our case for today. Again, my name is Dr. Jasmine Masumi. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.